Morning, Grace. Our passage today is John 11, 1 through 16. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken to of his death, but they thought that meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us all go, that we may die with him. Was that on purpose? (laughs) If you haven't been here recently, this has been a bit of an issue. It seems that it still is. Never tell you about David Leibowitz. He was one of my favorite professors, and he would begin every course. I had several courses with him, and he would say, this is the most important course you will ever take. And then he would explain why he believed that to be true. This is a remarkable passage, one of the most remarkable you'll ever see. I know saying that almost every week uh, takes away some of the punch that I might that I might otherwise have, but this this really is a remarkable passage, and for two reasons in particular, namely how clearly it shows both Jesus' humanity and his love. Ideally, to best see those two things, We'd be able to deal with John 11 and even into 12 all at once. It's one story that really needs to be seen together as a whole to understand any of its individual pieces properly. But as you can see, it's a, it's a long passage and there's a lot going on in it. And so for that reason, as is often the case, we need to break it up a little bit. This week, we're going to just look at the first 16 verses. And in these 16 verses, we'll see its description of the exceptional love that Jesus has for a trio of siblings. A couple of things we'll see in particular. We'll see Jesus, the fact of Jesus' love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. We'll see a little bit, at least, of the origin of that love. We'll see four glorious expressions of it. It's one thing to say you love somebody, but the real question is, what does that look like in real life? How does that play itself out? Because genuine love always does. 
And from those expressions, we'll see the nature of Jesus' love. We'll we'll be able to understand a little bit better about what constituted his love, what it was in its essence, and then where this love was going. We'll get to see a bit of that as well. The big idea of all of this is that Jesus has genuine, personal, practical love for all who trust in him. If your trust is in him, I hope to help you see this morning that Jesus loves you like he loves Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And the big takeaway for us then is threefold. Number one is that we would grow in our understanding of the genuine nature of the genuine love that Jesus has for his people. In order that, second, we might walk more fully in light of it. I'm going to ask you this explicitly later, but I want to ask you even now, sort of prime the pump for this question. How would your life look different if you lived each moment of it in full assurance that Jesus' full love was upon you at all times? How would you live differently? And that, third, in order that we might grow in it, in Jesus' love, the love he has for us, that we would grow in it for all of those around us. Let's pray that those things would be true. God, thank you that the microphone seems to be working. Thanks even for the brief shock that woke everyone up. I thank you that you are the God of microphones and microphone glitches. You are the God of those who are sick and get healed, and those are the, and you are the God of those who get sick and die and raised from the dead and everything else. You are the God of all things. You are the author of all things. We love you and we thank you that we get to see in your word another expression of this great story of redemption that you have revealed to us in your word. I pray, God, that we would see in it in particular the love that Jesus has, the real love for real people, each of us individually, as we place our faith and trust in him and the many ways that that plays itself out. Lazarus and the villagers of Bethany and and also in our lives today. And I pray that as we see it here, that we would that we would in faith receive it more in our own lives and live more fully in light of it, and then love like that in our homes and in our neighborhoods and in our church and in this world. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned in my introduction, this passage is primarily about Jesus' love for three individuals and the way that love is inseparably connected to the glory of God. So let's begin to consider by seeing the fact of Jesus' love for these three. God is both, and we sang about this, and Jesus, what a friend to sinners or for sinners, but God is both transcendent and imminent. Those are big fancy words, kids. God's love, or God is in general, and his love is as well, both transcendent and imminent. He is both beyond us, and near to us simultaneously all the time. He is both outside of his creation and inside of it. Most of us, and, he, and honestly, most of us as people, but also most churches and, and most Christian movements tend to emphasize one over the other. Just like we tend to emphasize one, we pick one of God's sovereignty or our agency to emphasize. We we all tend to lean one direction or the other, but scripture plainly teaches both. Our mistake is in thinking either of God, primarily in terms of his holiness, which of course he is, his set-apartness, which of course he is, and the ways that he is different from us, which of course he is. And it's important to think about those things and see those things in his word. 
But we tend to either think primarily in terms of those things, God's transcendence, or primarily in terms of his nearness, his sameness, his personal friendship with us, which of course he is as well. For those in camp transcendence who lean in that direction, passages like John 3.16 fit neatly as you consider the idea of God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. According to this verse, God loves the world, broad and general terms. There's a particular practical expression of that, but it's in an eternal sense. It's big and beyond. Certainly true. God does have a love for his world and his people. It is transcendent. But what we have in this passage, in John chapter 11, and verses 1 through 16 in particular, is the kind of passage that those in camp imminence like to point out. It doesn't describe this broad general love of God for the world, or even just the people of a particular town or tribe. Instead, it paints a clear and remarkable picture of Jesus' love for three people who have real names, who have real personalities, who we get to see in their nervousness and fear and sickness in a real personal and practical way. John 11 is the story of Jesus' love for each of them individually and sincerely, his imminent love. The fact that Jesus' love is explicitly stated twice fact of it is stated twice in the first five verses, first by Mary and Martha and the message they sent to Jesus, and then by John himself. Look at verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill. His name was Lazarus from the town of Bethany, and it's the village where Mary and her sister Martha, his sisters, lived. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, the one to whom you love, the one whom you love is ill. So they said that. They're reaching out to Jesus. Jesus, you would want to know this. You love him. He's sick. We want you to know. And just to make sure there's no mistaking that maybe Mary and Martha were, they were wrong. Jesus didn't actually, you know, they just were attributing something to Jesus that wasn't true. In order to make sure we know that's not the case, verse 5 says, John, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. We're going to come quickly to the origin. Where'd that love come from? the expressions of it, the nature of it, and even where it's going in just a moment. But Grace, don't be quick to move past this. Don't be move quick. To, don't, don't be quick to move past this expression of the imminent love of Jesus for this people. Again, let's not be quick to move past the fact that the eternally existing Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the light of the world, the Word of God, the one, John says, through whom all things were made, the Lamb of God, the one who knows everything in a man's heart, the Christ, the one with all authority. These are all descriptions John has given of Jesus to this point already. The transcendent one. Don't move quickly past the fact that that one also loved these three people in very real and specific and personal ways as the imminent one. Jesus really, truly loved Lazarus. He knew him. He knew who he was. He knew his fears and doubts and joys and strengths and weaknesses and Mary and Martha. As we slow down to make sure we really understand that, let's also remember again, Grace Church, that Jesus loves everyone who, whose hope is in him just like that. 
If your faith is in Jesus, the fact, this is a fact, it's not something that your feelings can change. It's not something that your actions can change. The fact of Jesus' love for you is indisputable, according to the Bible. Again, your thoughts, your feelings, your words, your actions, neither yours nor those of anyone or anything else can change the fact of Jesus' real and deep and personal love for you. Grace, as you wake up each morning, every morning, don't turn first to your phone. Don't get first annoyed at your alarm clock. As you wake up each morning, let your first thought increasingly be, with the help of the Spirit, I am loved by Jesus. It sounds childlike. It sounds like maybe your first Sunday school lesson ever in kindergarten. And I hope it was. (laughs) But I hope it's the same thing that comes through your head every morning as you get up. Fight to make that echo in your mind throughout the day as you feel feelings of doubt and guilt and loneliness and shame and fear and inadequacy and anxiety and discouragement creep in. Remember this. Don't let up on this. This is remarkable. He is near me, always. He knows me, all the good and all the bad. And he loves me unconditionally. Remember that as those feelings creep in. That is always true every minute of every day from now until forever for all who are in Jesus. And believing that, receiving that truly does change everything. All right. The fact of Jesus' love for these siblings and for us is clear. Before we come to the specifics of this for Mary and Martha and Lazarus, let's back up just a little bit, just a little bit to consider what we know, what little we know of the origin of this friendship and love. Grace, if you've been here for a while, you know that for the last several chapters in John's gospel, for us, it's been about five months. I had to go back and count. That's a long time. We've seen confrontation after confrontation after confrontation between Jesus and the Jews, followed by rejection of Jesus and rejection of Jesus and rejection of Jesus by the Jews. That might tempt us. Five months is a long time to sit in confrontation and rejection, primarily. And that might tempt us to think that Jesus' ministry was marked by nothing but confrontation and rejection. Well, this passage is a clear reminder that that wasn't the case. It stands in stark contrast to that notion. And for that reason, we might wonder, in spite of all these ways we've seen that people uh, got in Jesus' face and rejected him, how did this sweet, loving friendship begin? Well, interestingly, John doesn't tell us. Verse 2, look at verse 2, if you have your Bibles or up on the screen. It sort of sounds like it might, doesn't it? As you read that, it sort of sounds like John is making reference to something that already happened. Well, as we'll see in just a bit, it actually refers to something that's about to happen in chapter 12, not an earlier one. Truth be told, we're not sure how Jesus came to meet and and love this family. It is possible, we're not certain, uh, that... But I read on the background of this chapter that commentators seem pretty evenly divided on this, but it seems possible, at least, that Luke 10 describes the initial encounter. Luke 10, 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and the idea is if this does, in fact, describe this, at some previous point, Jesus had come to Bethany earlier, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. 
But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. The timing of this passage in Luke as it relates to our passage in John isn't crystal clear. Likewise, Lazarus isn't even mentioned in this earlier passage, this passage by Luke. Nevertheless, what we do know, and because John makes it clear, this Jesus had met this family at some point earlier, and over time, in ways not recorded by John, developed a friendship and a love for this family throughout his ministry. It is precisely because Jesus and his followers faced so much rejection and persecution that those who are faithful in their hope in Jesus and God the Father could have such a deep love and friendship develop so quickly. And in this, once again, grace is another aspect of Jesus' life and ministry that we must follow. We are to give ourselves, as you hear this good news, as you see this love of Jesus, and as you receive it more and seek to extend it to the world, keep this in mind. We're to give ourselves to sharing this good news with the world and to sharing our lives and our hearts with them as well. The Apostle Paul worded it this way, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, not only this good news, but also our own selves, because you had become so very dear to us. Following Jesus' example in ministry is not merely repeating the facts of Jesus with or to others. It is also genuinely loving them like Jesus did, with whom we share these facts. It is, it is pursuing fellow followers of Jesus and genuine gospel friendships with them. And for the most part, that happens as it did in Jesus' ministry by going through the ups and downs of following Jesus together over time. Very thankful for so much of that at Grace Church. All right, that's the fact of and the origin-ish of Jesus' love for this family about the nature and expressions. In this passage, we see four particular expressions of Jesus' love for these three. And from that, we see the nature of this, his love. The first expression, he loved this family by caring for them in their suffering. The first aspect of Jesus' love for Lazarus and Mary and Martha is mostly implied. This, this caring notion that Jesus had for them, this care that Jesus had for them, is mostly implied in these 16 verses. The fact that he determined to go to them shows that he cared for them. The fact that he did so, even though, as the disciples pointed out, and as we'll look at in just a few minutes, even though they lived near the place where the Jews had just tried to stone him, shows it even more clearly. But what's implied in our passage will become clear next week in verses 33 to 36. They say this, when Jesus arrived in Bethany, saw Martha weeping. And the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and great, greatly troubled. Remember that, Grace. As you endure suffering, as you endure hardship, as, as life is not as you would have it to be, Jesus is deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then one of the more famous passages, two simple words, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how much he loved him. Grace, genuine love is never indifferent to others, especially in their suffering. People suffer for all kinds of ways and for all kinds of reasons, so knowing exactly what form that care should take can be somewhat tricky. And it's not always what the person who is suffering thinks it should look like. 
But love always cares. It is always concerned. It always comes with a measure of sympathy and compassion. Jesus loved Lazarus and his family, and so when he received news of their dire predicament, he cared about them and their suffering. It it mattered to him. Second, Jesus loved this family by helping them in their suffering. Love means caring for people in their suffering, and caring means moving towards them to help them in their suffering. Again, the fullness of Jesus' care, the fullness of the care that he provided won't become clear until we continue to make our way through chapter 11. But there are hints here. He he helps us to see what form his care is going to take. Jesus said, this illness does not lead to death. And he said, I go to awaken Lazarus. As you know, there's a bit of irony in these statements, and they're true in more indirect ways. Jesus would go to this family, and he would comfort these sisters, and he would ensure that this illness would not ultimately lead to Lazarus's, or end Lazarus's life. And he would do so by awakening him from his sleep. And in these things, Jesus would express love for Lazarus and his sisters by helping them in their suffering. Just as it can be difficult to know how to care for someone in their suffering, it can also be difficult to know how to help. Difficult or not, love, grace, always moves toward those who are hurting. I'm consistently amazed by how well you all do that at Grace Church. The sacrificial ways so many of the women of Grace have especially served Chuck and Jen and their season of trial and coming alongside of so many moms and kids through Together for Good in Jesus' name. And one of the things that maybe you don't know about Jack and all of his goofiness is that he used to wander around the hospital just looking for people who were lonely to talk to and pray with. Seems like a little bit of a hazard, but it was done out of love for sure. The help that so many of you have provided and continue to provide for the Westfalls and on and on. Jesus' love for Lazarus's family was expressed in his care for them and his helping of them in their suffering, and our love must as well. Third, Jesus loved Lazarus by being fearless in his love. This is probably my favorite part of the passage. In another interesting interlude, Jesus sort of goes off and says these things that no one quite seems to understand what he means. But they're pointed and significant. Jesus taught the disciples something really important in this interlude about the nature of love and in general and his love for Lazarus in particular. You got to remember the end of chapter 10. If you weren't here, it's, it's important to set the context. At the end of the last chapter in Jerusalem, which is not far from Bethany where Lazarus was ill, many Jews sought to to stone Jesus to death. He had taught and he had stirred their anger to the point that they accused him of blasphemy and believed that the thing that they must do was stone him to death for that blasphemy. Well, because his time had not yet come, Jesus journeyed north to avoid that treachery. And so they picked up stones to stone him and then later to arrest him, and Jesus evaded that. Well, the message from Lazarus's sisters to Jesus was a summons to come back to that area where those same angry Jews would have access to to him. In other words, going toward Lazarus would mean necessarily going back toward danger. Nevertheless, look at verse 7. It says, after this, Jesus said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. 
aware of what this would mean, the disciples' ears perked up, and they said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going to go there again? In other words, the disciples were afraid. We're not told exactly how Jesus escaped last time, how he escaped from the stoning, attempt to arrest him, but the disciples' question here seems to suggest it wasn't through some peace treaty. The Jews were still violently angry at Jesus. The disciples knew it, and they were understandably nervous about heading back into that hot spot. In a much smaller way, I'll never, I'll never forget this, at least I don't think I will. Very first mission trip I ever went on, it was to the Middle East. And after handing out Bibles for several hours, we were detained, taken into custody by police officers and held for about an hour. We never felt, I never felt, maybe I should have, but I never felt like I was in any real physical danger, much less that they might take out stones to stone me. They only kept us for a, a relatively short amount of time and and left, let us go with all of our Bibles, with just a warning. But I distinctly remember the feeling of unease that came in the next day as we went out again to a different spot. It's hard not to imagine the disciples feeling that same kind of thing multiplied by a lot. It's good to consider what love looks like in that kind of a situation. They have a point, don't they? Jesus, you just left there for a reason. I mean, you could have stayed and allowed yourself to be stoned if you wanted, but you left for a reason, and and now you're considering going back there? Jesus answered them, Are there not 12 hours in a day? And incidentally, he knows there's 24 hours in a day. The Jewish understanding was that there are 12 hours in a day and 12 hours at night. Are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks at night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. It's sort of a, a cryptic response, but there's two main things I want you to see from it. First, Jesus meant that he was only going to be with them for a short while longer. The time of his ministry on earth was, in, this, in these words, considered the day. He is the light of the world, and in a short amount of time, he would be crucified, and in this language, the 13th hour would come, and that's when stumbling might happen. In this, his point was the disciples didn't need to fear while he was with them. Yeah, you're right. They, they are angry, and we might get into some trouble, but I am with you. Be not afraid. It's the same way for you and me today, Grace, but the good news is that there is no 13th hour for us. Jesus defeated death. That is what Jesus meant when he said that it is better for you, for his followers, for me. He'll say that in John 16 when he leaves, and that he will always be with us in Matthew 28. Jesus is with us always, and therefore we need not fear in our love. He is the light who has overcome the darkness. His presence frees us to love others regardless of the cost to doing so. So love well, Grace. Love well. Love fearlessly. Love all the way through as Jesus did. Love in the knowledge that insofar as you are in Jesus, it is always day. You are always in the light, and Jesus will always keep you from stumbling. Well, the second main thing in Jesus' words to see here is that loving in the ways God has called us to, even if people surround you with stones with which to stone you, is always the safest place in the shortest path to fullest joy. Discomfort and death, we sang about this. I hope you believed it when we just sang about it. 
Discomfort and even death are not the ultimate, are not ultimate, the ultimate things to be avoided. Jesus shows us that faithlessness and lovelessness are those things. When we come to truly believe what Jesus modeled and going back to this fire, that loving all the way to the end is safer and more joyful than stopping short or veering off course, then and only then can we love as God means us to and experience his love for us as he means us to. Fourth, finally, Jesus loved Lazarus above all by working to maximize his view of the glory of God. That won't come fully until later, but we see it a bit here. The fourth, final, and most significant expression of Jesus' love for Lazarus was that he did the exact opposite of what everyone wanted him to do. Jesus had a way about doing that in order to accomplish something infinitely greater. Everyone wanted, as you and I probably would as well, everyone wanted Jesus to come quickly and heal Lazarus before he died. And at first, that sort of sounded like what Jesus agreed to do. When Jesus heard of Lazarus' illness, he said, this illness doesn't lead to death. Awesome. Awesome news, right? It is for the glory of God that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Isn't that how we pray? Isn't that how you pray when you are sick or you know someone who is? God, be glorified. We want God to be glorified. And and be glorified in the healing of my friend or my parent or my spouse or my child or whomever. In that way, this sounds like really good news. Jesus got word that Lazarus was sick and then pronounced the good news that it would not lead to death, but to the glory of God. The only possible way that can happen is that Jesus would leave immediately, like Mary and Martha asked, in order to get there before he died, so that he could glorify the Father by healing Lazarus, right? That's the only way that love might be expressed and God might be glorified and Lazarus might be helped. A version of that actually already happened in John's Gospel in chapter 9, 9, 1 through 3. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, man, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither. It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him, that God might be glorified. And what did Jesus do? He gave him sight and he could see. He's got to do that again, right? That's the only way. Grace, do you have a category for any answer other than that? Any any other than that which Mary and Martha had? Do you have a category for the love of God being expressed and the glory of God being displayed most fully in any way other than miraculous healing of someone that you love in sickness? If love cares and moves toward and helps in times of suffering, what what kind of love could be greater than healing and ending that suffering in that way? If your understanding of love doesn't have room for a different expression of love than that, what Jesus does next is not going to make any sense to you at all. You don't, you won't have any room for that kind of love. So now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. This is still sounds like good news. Still sounds like they're going to, he's going to do what they, they asked. So verse six, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he took off, like got in his car and drove as fast as he could. He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Wait a minute. That doesn't, I must, I must have read that wrong. Is that what what it says up there too? That doesn't make any sense. 
Jesus loved these three, and so he stayed two days longer. And that means even more than you think it does. And I'll, I'll tell you about that next week. But what in the world could that possibly mean? That might sound like the least loving thing you've ever heard. Picture this. You have to picture this if you're really going to get the glory and love of this passage. You're standing there. Picture this. You're standing there. You and a friend are just sort of hanging out. Your friend is a doctor. He's an emergency room doctor. Another friend comes running up to you, panicked, saying, hey, one of, you, one of your friends, one of our friends just got in a terrible car crash and needs your help immediately. Obviously, you expect your emergency room doctor friend to take off at a full sprint. What would you do? You're standing there. What would you do if instead he said, nah, let's give it a day or two. I'll make my way over over then. I'm sure there'll still be something on the road to deal with. For the glory of God. That's let's just let's just let's just wait a little while. That is in effect what we have here. And the question is, what kind of love is that? The answer is the fullest, greatest, most glorious kind. After saying these things, he said to him, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples, hopeful that they might not have to go back into the hot spot, said, Lord, if that's all it is, if if he's only fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, because I love you too, disciples. I am glad that I was not there so that you might believe, but let us go to him. Watch this play out over the next couple of weeks in John 11. But the two absolutely crucial things for us to see right here and right now are these, Grace. Number one, love for people in the glory of God cannot be separated. And I'll tell you about that in a second. Love for people and the glory of God cannot be separated. And second, love and glory properly mingled rarely look like what we think it should look like. As I mentioned a bit ago, from these four love expressions, we can begin to see the nature of Jesus' love for this family. Jesus' love is best understood as the affectionate pursuit of that which is best for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It is not, as we are so often told today and tempted to believe today, making the biggest deal possible out of them. It is not that Jesus liked the way they made him feel when he was around them. It is not clearly doing whatever they wanted for him, from him. The love Jesus had for them and the kind of love he has for you and for me and the kind of love we are meant to have for each other and for the world was gladly paying whatever price was necessary to give them what was, to bring to them what was truly and genuinely and eternally best for them. They believed that was preventing Lazarus from dying. Jesus had something else in mind. Jesus knew that what was best for them, for his watching disciples and for you and I who are reading this so many years later, was to maximize their ability to see and delight in the glory of God. And he knew a better way to get that for them than anything they had imagined. And in that, Jesus loved them more deeply than they ever could have imagined. He had an even fuller expression of love in store for them than they could have imagined. What about the future of this love? Where is this going? The fact, the origin, the expressions, the nature, and finally and very briefly, the future of Jesus' love for this family and this family's love for Jesus. Three simple but profound things. Jesus Love for this family. I learned the word penultimate recently. I just needed to work that into the sermon. So here it is. 
Jesus' love for this family will reach its penultimate point in verse 43 when he raises Lazarus from the dead. But it will not reach its ultimate point, its fullest expression, until chapter 20 when Jesus raises himself from the dead on Lazarus' behalf. That's awesome. Penultimate. Second, at the beginning of chapter 12, Mary's love for Jesus, unknowingly to her at the time, where is this love going? Jesus' love for them would raise Lazarus from the dead and raise himself from the dead for Lazarus and for all the world who would receive him. Second, where is their love going for him? Mary's love for Jesus, unknowingly to her at the time, expresses itself most fully by anointing Jesus for his death and burial, preparing the way for him to save the world from our sins. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment and made, made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. That's what John was speaking of back to in 11.2. Third, and this will become really important as we make our way through the Passion Week, this family will express their love for Jesus by hosting and protecting him each night during the final week of Jesus' life from Friday to Wednesday. We'll see that soon, and we'll see how that played out as a part of God's plan of salvation. The main thing for us to see in each of these things is that Jesus' love for this family was and is and forever will be awesome beyond measure. We must learn from the true nature of love, from this, the true nature of love. We must receive this love from Jesus, live in light of it, and offer it to the whole world. To be a Christian is to have that kind of love from God for you eternally, now and forever and to have that kind of love from him through you to his people. It is a different kind of love, to be sure. It is a kind of love that can only come from the Spirit of God in us, but it is a far, far greater kind of love than any other kind you've ever experienced. Thomas seems to have begun to get this. We know him mainly as doubting Thomas, but Thomas seems to have begun to get a taste of this, which is why he said in verse 16, after Jesus said what he said, let's do this. That's my translation. What he actually said was, let us go also that we may die with him. The other disciples initially, and perhaps Thomas as well, said, Jesus, are you sure this is a good idea to love like that, to make our way into the place where they just wanted to kill you? Thomas says, let us go also then. If that's what it means, Jesus. If that's what your love is like, let us go also that we may die with him. He was at least beginning to recognize the kind of love that he needed most and was to give to others. The kind that he needed was not the kind that was most comfortable or common, but the kind most filled with the glory of God. May we come to see this increasingly as well, in order that we might love like this as well.